Welcome to the Track West Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and joining me tonight, my co-host, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's up, Bob? Oh, not much. How you doing, James? Oh, man, I'm doing good. Uh, we've got a really awesome guest on tonight coming to us from Alberta, Canada. Is it is Alberta, is that international or North America? <laughs> I don't know. It's Canadian, eh? So. It's Canadian, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, th- this guy Bert is just a, a cool dude. He's a boyer up there. He's he's been been doing it forever. Grizzly bears and mountain goats and big mule deer. He's he's a hunting fool. So yeah, he's also a, a, a boyer. He builds some uh, laminated longbows and recurves, and he's a big self bow guy. Um, he's been around the game for a long time. He's been exposed to all the greats. I guess he talks about it in there. I know uh, John Strunk was one of his mentors, and Dick Robertson, and Jay Massey, and so I mean, it's uh, this guy's got some awesome uh, experience and knowledge under his belt. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Bert's a good dude. Uh, we talk a little bit. We get on the the technology subject a little bit and we talk about you know what's going on up there with their mule deer seasons in alberta there's been some changes recently so we go into that tell a few epic hunting stories and uh hope you guys enjoy it yeah and also i want to give a shout out to uh adam brennan he reached out to me on social media and he's a super cool guy i've talked to him a bunch uh via text or private message and he turned me on to uh, Bert Freelink. I think Bert is a mentor of his. And so uh, we want to give a big uh, thank you to Adam for bringing Bert into our lives because this guy uh, has a lot to offer. So thanks, Adam. Yeah, and um, also any of you guys out there that are listeners, if you if you got a guy like Bert or mentor or somebody that you know maybe nobody's heard of you want to get on the podcast, don't be afraid to shoot us a message on even Facebook or whatever and, and Instagram uh, Instagram yeah for sure we appreciate it yeah we, we definitely appreciate you taking time out we know it's hunting season for you right now and uh, as we talked earlier it sounds like you're hunting some whitetails and some elk why don't you give us a uh, introduction to where you're from and how you got into traditional archery okay um I'm, I was born and raised in, in Holland, the Netherlands, um, big town, Amsterdam, uh, big city, I guess. Immigrated to Canada in 1972, just a few days after my 20th birthday. Um, I wanted to go sooner than that, but my mom, unfortunately, decided that I could wait till after my birthday. Anyway, make a long story short. I got started in traditional archery uh, in the early, early 80s, but always had a hankering, started like everybody else with a, with a rifle, uh, or most everybody else, I guess, a rifle hunted for a few years, switched to the... the you, moved the right to, uh, you moved right to Alberta, Canada from Amsterdam? I did, yes. Okay. Yes, moved to Cal- Calgary uh, for the first few years, and then uh, was lucky enough to uh, 
be able to afford an acreage and and uh, moved out of town and over the years migrated down to the southern part of Alberta. I'm about uh, an hour or so north of the Montana border um, in a small town called Pincher Creek right now. Okay, and what what did you do for a living as a young man? <laughs> I was <laughs> I was uh, I was trained as a as a baker. Uh, Okay. pastry chef, bread baker in Amsterdam and, and worked for a long time, even in Canada. As a, My first job was in a, in a, just a regular bake shop in, in Calgary. And then I kind of saw the light and got into the institutional um, end of things. I worked for uh, uh Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. It was a, a big trade school where I where I started as a production baker to supply the cafeterias and so on. And uh, after that, I was lucky enough to get into the uh, educational system and worked in the educational system for about uh, 18 years. Uh, moved down to Pincher Creek, kind of, we were always raised to, you know, what you start with, you finish kind of thing. And as I got older, I realized there was other things that, that I could do and, and so on. Anyway, I went back to school when I was 50 and acquired my uh, fifth class power engineering ticket and got a job at the, the local hospital to run the boilers and the heating systems and so on for the last few years of my career and retired uh, two years ago. Wow. Oh, so it's just hunting and fishing now, huh? Hunting and fishing, you bet, yeah. <laughs> so did you have a uh, upbringing in, in hunting in Amsterdam, or is there is hunting legal in Holland? Or No, there is very little hunting, um, uh, just for the elite few people and, and the permits and the uh, and the red tape and so on is is uh, pretty much non-existence for for the average guy, you know. Um, as far so, as I know, I mean, I haven't been back there for a lot of years, and I've been gone for forty-five years now. So, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. So, you must have felt pretty blessed to uh, move to Canada and had th- this new. Uh, opportunity to go uh, hunting? Well, you know, a person doesn't realize it because, I mean, I as a little boy growing up, I was always in, into, you know, the cowboy and Indian thing, and and I, I loved shooting, and we had uh, made, you know, always made bows and arrows and blow guns and I don't know where that came from, but I, I guess it just goes to show you that it's the predator in all of us is uh, is present. It just it just needs to be woken up, you know. Absolutely. So let me ask you: Were you were you the cowboy or the Indian most of the time, Bert? <laughs> I, it dependent it dependent kind of on the on the neighborhood kids. Um, I I probably was the some of each, I think, but but mostly lean towards the archery end of things. Absolutely. So that's where I guess I'd cut you off. So you started with a rifle and you'd move to a, a compound bow? 
Yes, and first year I I killed a mule deer doe. Um, so I mean, I thought, heck, there's nothing to nothing to this bow hunting stuff, you know. And uh, of course, never killed another thing for three or four years after that. But but always was interested in in the longbow and the the, the traditional archery end of things. And I was lucky enough to read a, a bow hunter magazine at the time, I think had an advertisement for the first North American longbow safari. And there was a contact named there, a gentleman by the name of David Richardson, who was also from Calgary. And I was living in Calgary at the time. So I phoned him up and I said, Dave, I've, I don't shoot a, a, a longbow, but I'm interested in, I would like to come to your shoot and, and of course, he took advantage of the opportunity um, and said, "You know, there is. Uh, we're building some targets, and would you like to be involved in in helping out?" And then I I did that, and we built targets in the in the back of Dave's shop. And and uh, at the time, three um, D targets were pretty much unheard of. So what we did was we went to a, a box making company and bought tons of cardboard and we laminated these sheets of cardboard together and then uh, projected the animal outlines on them and, and cut them out with a, with a jigsaw. And there was, we had a commercial artist in the, in the group that, um, painted them all and it was just uh, that's that's how we ran the first North American longbow safari in the in the early 80s I think it was 80 82 was the first one in in Home, Alberta okay and so the longbow safari I believe that goes from does it go from Oregon to Washington to Canada to Montana and back is that the round it makes it's it's not it's it's it doesn't have the specific st- uh, states. Uh, it just uh, the idea was to have it go back and forth uh, from Canada to to the U.S. and then back to the back to Canada and then back to the U.S. and so on. And it's been it's been in Utah. It's been in uh, uh, Washington. It's been in Montana a few times. Uh, there is no set circuit, so to speak. Okay, it was on Vancouver Island last year, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, and and then I think Oregon the year before. Could be. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So, 1982 um, recurves and longbows are kind of in the gutter at this time. The compound bow is really picking up momentum. Um, is that is that a fair statement? Oh, I absolutely, um, so blessed. I mean, I was so keen on learning, you know, uh, uh, I had no idea how to shoot this, this longbow I had. I bought, uh, first longbow I bought was, uh, from Howard Hill archery out of Hamilton, Montana. It was a 65 pound, uh, 68 inches long, uh, Howard Hill big five. And that's what I shot at that first longbow safari. And then was very blessed with, with 
meeting uh, like-minded people, you know, um, uh, the Jay Masseys of the world and Dick Robertson and John Strunk and Daryl Cardwell and Stan Smith from Alaska and all those guys. And I mean, I thought they walked on water, you know, I was watching those guys sitting around a campfire at night and chopping on a chunk of Osage or, or choke cherry or, or whatever it was. And, um, it was just, it was just magical for me. And I, I'd never touched another compound or, uh, or a rifle after that. Wow. You were, uh, you were, you were, uh, hanging out with some, some actual legends. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it rubbed off and I guess we're, I, I just turned 65 this fall and I guess that it's up to us now to pass it on to that knowledge and that desire to learn and to, to you younger guys, you know, for sure. Yeah. So Robert, that's got to open up uh, a box of questions. I'd imagine. <laughs> well, I was, I was fortunate enough to go to, I think it was the 30 year anniversary of the longbow safari when they had it here in Oregon and it was a blast. And there was a, there was a couple there that, had been to every every one since it started must have been in 82 which was yeah, super cool Dave and Marion Marion Stratton probably yep yep so super awesome so when you started you know you went from the compound to the longbow it sounds like did you go straight to a self bow or I mean how, how did that work no no he, he, no, he had, I, he had I the did. Howard Hill oh that's right that's right yeah I used that Howard Hill bow for years, and then I just watched those guys. And as as I got to know Strunk better, and and those guys, the the kind of the the fire kind of got a little stronger, I guess. And got to talking about John doing some classes, and I signed up for one of his classes. I I imagine probably somewhere around the mid nineties and probably took a class for hit from him for the next 20, 20 years or better. Oh, so you, you annually went down to, uh, Oregon and took a class from, from shrunk. Yeah. And he usually did a class at the, at the safari at the longbow safari, usually the oh. week before. Okay. So we'd go down a week early and and sit around and and uh, chop on some some wood. Awesome. And did you start with uh, with that uh, Howard Hill? Were you shooting aluminums or were you shooting cedars or what arrows did you start with? I sh- I shot cedars out of the out of the the Howard Hill bow exclusively for years, and then of course you know you there is always people that kind of influence and say, Hey, you, you got to try these new fur shafts or you got to try these, uh, laminated birch or so played around with that a little, uh, even to the point where I planed some of my own out of, a out of some fur that was, was taken out of an old school gym actually. Very cool. So how has your equipment evolved from 
then to now. I know that you are the owner and operator of Quarter Moon Bows, and uh, you're a boyer, and you do some lamination bows and some self bows. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Quarter Moon Bows and maybe how your equipment has evolved from then to what you're hunting with today? Yeah, after I built a couple of self bows with John, I thought, well, it, and everybody was telling me, well, you, you, the laminated bows are a piece of cake for tillering and and so on compared to to compare to these self bows. So I um, knew a gentleman out of Edmonton, which is about five six hours north of here, uh, by the name of Jack Kempf, and I I talked to him and actually borrowed his Howard Hill style form for my for my very first uh, laminated bow and so I you know built a few for friends and and so on and it kind of grew from there it then uh, I start I started selling a few and and of course people are always looking to improve and with the reflex deflex design and and uh, and so on so um i i built quite a few bows the first few years probably built oh i don't know it depends on on the interpretation too i guess because quite a few bows to some people is is uh, i probably at the height of my my business probably built 30 bows a year. Okay. Uh, and I'm down to, I'm, I've, I retired and I really don't want to spend, I didn't quit a job to, to get a job. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. So I, I, I'm down to probably, I built maybe half a dozen bows a year now. Some, some years a little more, some years a little less, but I'm, I'm currently hunting myself with, uh, a uh, 62 pound recurve that I, of my own built. It's it's kind of modeled after uh, the old style recurves, the 50s recurve, the old bare straight uh, grip. You know, not the fancy elaborate big risers and so on. Just it's basically a, a, a longbow design handle with uh, with recurve limbs. Gotcha. And uh, what are you shooting for uh, arrows and broadheads? I was a, a big ma- uh, fan of the Magnus 160 Magnus 2 blade. Uh-huh. But uh, they uh, apparently sold to, I can't think of the name right offhand, Thunder Valley Archery, I think, is making them now. And the quality just is not what I would recommend to anybody. Copy. Uh, and I've, I've gone back. I've switched back now. I've shot the Wikis. I've shot the 190 Grizzlies. And um, they're, they're, any two-blade broadhead, I'm a big proponent of two-blade broadheads for the equipment that we shoot. Um, I shoot uh, fur shafts. Um, the Sherwood you, shafts, uh, oh, I think yeah, those, we, I think those are the, by far the, the better quality shafts that are on the market. And the thing I like about them is they're a little heavier. My hunting arrows, uh, well, all of my arrows actually are, uh, I try and keep them in that mid 600 
range 620, 640, somewhere in there. And you, yeah, shoot, you shoot about 60 pounds, you said, Bert? 62 pounds yeah. right now, yeah. And and that that's worked for you, I mean, from what I've heard, you grizzly bear and and with a 62-pound, like moose, that's fine, two-blade? Oh, absolutely. I sh- I'm shooting. I actually killed a moose here, a 44-inch moose, a few years ago at about, shot was about 18 yards for, um, and shot two arrows at him, actually, um, and both of them were clean pass-throughs. Really? And that was with the fifth. That was with the fifty-two pound bow. Wow. I, I think the biggest thing that we have to we have to realize with the equipment we we need to make sure that our arrows are matched to our equipment. If you get good arrow flight, you, you're going to get good penetration. If your arrow flight sucks, your your penetration is hugely impeded by your arrow wobbling around when it hits. Absolutely. Uh, me, me and, uh, Robert Bull shoot Sherwood shafts. We're, we're, we're friends with, uh, Bob and Steve and Carson, the owners, and they put out a really good, um, arrow for sure. Yeah, no question that by far, I, in my opinion, anyway, the, the, the better shaft on the market today. Are you still shooting a 160, 190 type grain broadhead on your arrows? Yes. I went back actually after, after, uh, Thunder Valley took over the Magnus line. Um, I switched back to uh, the 190 Ace mm-hmm. two blade. It's blade. a it's a big broadhead, but it's it's sure. Uh, I killed a, a pretty decent mule deer buck with it a few a few years ago um, with a with a hickory arrow of all things. That arrow weighed 800 and some grains. Whoa! And uh, out of a 53-pound bow, I think it was a 53-pound straight hill design bow, and at about maybe 20 yards, and that, and it was yeah, it was uh, there was no question with uh, no problem with penetration whatsoever. So I've got to ask: You're in Alberta, Canada, legendary mule deer uh, area. When you say uh, pretty decent mule deer, what 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 is that? Um. Pretty decent mule deer around here is probably in the 150, 160 range. Okay. Uh, I was lucky enough to hunt some areas in the in the bow zone around Calgary. There, it, there is a bow zone around Calgary and Edmonton that is strictly bow and arrow, and we had permission years ago on a on a, one of the, the farms that was almost butted up against the, the city limits. Uh, in Calgary, and anyway, uh, I was lucky enough to kill a, a mule there that went well over 200. Wow. So, a mature mule deer like that, what, uh, what what's his live weight on the hoof? Because I know those deer up in Canada, from what I've seen on video, they look elk size. I mean, they look huge. Yeah, yeah they... Those big mature mature whitetails and and uh, mule deer are. I bet that mule deer probably went well over three hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah. On the hoof. Yeah, it it's there there. It's like a small elk, you know. Yeah. Could you tell us uh, 
that story of that big mule deer? Sure. Oh, it goes back to 1985. We've been hunting pretty hard and and all all fall. You know, our season runs from the first of September to the end of November. Um, in the bow zones as well, and and uh, of course it's archery only all the way through in the bow zone. So anyway, it was uh, it was towards the end of November. Um, there was three of us hunting the area the weekend before because we we all had jobs in those days. So pretty much the hunting was either early season after work or later on in the season weekends, you know, because the, the, the daylight and so on. But I was, what always used to work good for us was doing little, short little pushes. Uh, one guy would set up and the other two guys would, on a trail or, or on an obvious uh, escape route or so on, and the other two guys would kind of still hunt their way from, Oh, two, three hundred yards upwind, and that that always worked good for us. But as you know, it's it's uh, getting close doesn't always mean that you're going to get a shot either. You know. Anyway, it was very cold. It was towards the end of November. It was probably in the well into the minus twenty Celsius. Sure. Um, yeah, it was was pretty chilly, and the uh, the the weekend before there was three of us hunting, and the, the weekend I I killed that deer was there was just two of us. Anyway, I came within a whisker of shooting uh, a little four corn mule deer buck the weekend before, um, which I'm I'm very thankful now. That of course I I didn't get to draw the string back, but. Anyway, um, we hunted hard in the morning, and it was it was chilly, very chilly, and we could not find a deer on the place. We hunted till probably eleven o'clock, and we were hunting right beside the Bow the Bow River, actually. And uh, all of a sudden, in the in the Willow Flats, right along the edge of the river, there were there we we spotted some deer down there, and and my my hunting partner said well you go set up and i'll go back around and i'll i'll push him to you so i got set up in the in the willows uh right i wasn't i bet i wasn't eight feet ten feet from the the edge of the river and it was all full of slush and ice was creaking and so i was sitting there and Pretty soon I could see some deer coming, working their way through the willows. And every deer that came out of out of that willow flat was on a trail that was probably 50, 60 yards from where I was sitting. And I'm going, man, I wish I was sitting on that other trail and blah, blah, blah. And there was a, every deer in the place was down on that. And I'm not sure why, maybe because it was out of the wind or Every deer in the place was on on that willow flat. Anyway, I pretty soon I could see my hunting partner coming through the willows, and I thought, well, the game's over now, you know. Like, and there was bucks and does, and come out of there, and 
And all of a sudden, he kind of ducked, hunkered down, ducked down a bit, and he was he was uphill a little bit from where the deer were. And he got his binoculars out of his sweater, and, and he's looking down, and he's he ducks down, and he's going back. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to grab my stuff and run over to this other trail and see if I can't find a place to... So I, I grab my cot quiver and, and my bow, and, and I'm kind of starting to move and all of a sudden I could see a doe and two does and this big huge mule deer buck in behind them and which made it I couldn't move if I I have to stay where I'm at and she got to the edge of the willows and she's standing looking at either trail kind of going and I'm thinking oh man come to papa (laughs) and she lucky enough she took the trail I was sitting on and and uh, he was right on on her tail, and I think the, the, one of the does that he was with was in in heat, and uh, he was right on her behind and and uh, grunting the whole way. And uh, but I this thing looked to me like it was this, was an elk, you know, it was just massive, and. Uh, the trail was probably about eight or ten yards from where I was sitting, and she walked by, and I kind of started half the because I knew he was right behind her, and she kind of saw me move a little, maybe, and jumped off the trail. But he was—I so, could have sat there and played the trumpet, you know, and <laughs> it, it wouldn't—it wouldn't have mattered to him at all. Anyway, he walked by at at eight yards, and I, the Howard Hill, barked and. He went probably 50, 60 yards, and it just was, it was just, I couldn't believe it, you know, it was just a, a dream come true. Wow. And anyway, my partner partner came over, and uh, he says, which one did you get? Did you get the little one or the big one? I says, no, I got the big one. He says, well, let's go. I says, no, we got to, we got to wait like at least a half an hour, you know, and and uh, so we, st- well, where did he go? And, and so on and got the binoculars out and literally, you know, a little graphic maybe, but literally both sides of the trail going through the willows, you could see the blood dripping off the willows. Wow. It was just, just, yeah, it was incredible. I was with, uh, with uh, both the big mule there I killed was with a 190 grizzly single edge, yeah, single bevel. So anyway, he says, well, I'm, well, let's have some juice or something then, you know, and, and I, I always used to pack those little cardboard, little Tetra Pak juices. Uh-huh. <laughs> little box juice. Yeah. And uh, so we, we, I dig one out of my, out of my cat quiver and uh, it was frozen solid. And so he said, well, that's enough of that. Let's, let's just go trail and then, you know. Yeah, he ended up he ended up scoring, and I'm I'm not so much into score anymore. But he went uh, over two twelve, just over two twelve and change. Wow! And he was uh, one of those big three hundred pound bodied. Oh yeah, there. you yeah yeah massive. Uh, was he a typical four by four type racked buck, or tell us a little bit about that? He's a typical. Mainframe is four, but he's uh, uh, nine by ten. So he, um, yeah, he's 
he's got a bunch of non-typical points, but they're very, very, uh, people look at him and say, well, what, how did you do that? Because they don't grow like that, you know, and he's, he's very even. I think he only loses like two or three inches, um, from gross score wise. The net. Yeah. So wow. Bert, um, I'm picturing it being pretty thick up there. Then do you still use that kind of, you know, not necessarily a dry, but the push kind of method there that you were using back then, do you still use that as a tactic in that thicker type country? Yeah, it's sometimes, if I know the country really well and you kind of get to know that their travel routes, that works really well. Um, but I, I hunt more agricultural land now where there is uh, some of the bigger cattle ranches that are down here, um, and it's they their patterns don't seem to, especially mule deer. I think they're it, it's hard to pattern them, and, and they don't do the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. I know guys that go out and scout in in July and and August, and but the difference in their in their travel routes between July and August and September are, are hugely different when crops come off and, you know, things, tractors driving the field and so on. It's, they change tremendously here. So, so now you're kind of more spot and stock pretty much. I, I really enjoy, yeah, I really enjoy, I think mule deer were made for spot and stock hunting. Um, uh, unfortunately, we have lost our general mule deer uh, uh, over-the-counter tags. Uh, we it's all on a draw system now. Okay. So it's. Um, it can you can you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's been in the works for for quite a while. About five or six years ago. Um, Probably 10 years ago, the Fish and Game Department had mentioned that if the bow hunter success rate would go 15%, they, they would put the mule deer uh, on, on a draw system. And it kind of went back and forth. And by the time it all went through, it's probably been six or seven years now that that draw system has been in place. The, the, the population, I think, can sure stand the, the harvest rate, but I, I guess the complaint from the outfitting industry was that the, the, the bow hunters were, were killing all the big mule deer bucks, you know, and they had better, I think they had better representation at the table than, than we did. And that kind of caught the bow hunting community by surprise, I think. And it just kind of got steamrolled through and it, um, so that was pushed by, it was pushed by the outfitters, not necessarily the, the fish and game. It was pushed by the outfitters to try to kind of protect the bigger bucks for them. Well, I think I, I think they had better. They were they were better prepared at the table when the negotiations were happening. That that's maybe just my my interpretation. I I I can't say that's gospel. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so the success rate it 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 rised over time due to um, 
influx in hunters or um, um, yeah I think I think the efficiency of the of the modern day archery equipment um, has hugely contributed to that I think the the compound bows now that guys are making routinely making 50 60 yard shots and and beyond you know like I have a, a close friend of mine that killed a mule deer buck, uh, 190 plus mule deer buck at 81 yards. And, and so the success rate, I'm working on, I'm working on them though, but it's, it's hard. The success, I think it's, I think it's part of the, the blame lies on our society where it's like going to McDonald's, you know, you, you put your money down and instant gratification, you get a few, pennies in change back and two minutes later you have your hamburger and i think that's kind of our it's there's got to be a result right yeah. you know you your money you buy your hunting license and now what's the hold up i need to go kill a mule deer or a, or an elk or whatever what have you yeah uh, um so what you you talked about the success rate climbing up to above 15 percent um, do you know what the success rate was, you know, where it started? I mean, I imagine it was around five, 6% and it just rose with, uh, the technology and, uh, yeah, hunter ab- increase. Ab- yeah, absolutely. That's, that's exactly where it was. It's, I think it was four or 5% when I, when I started looking at some of this stuff and, and it's, um, it's been the last few years, it's been over 15%, um, for a meal there anyway. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. simple. If you can shoot twice as far, you're going to have twice as twice the success rate. That's for sure. Yeah, and that that definitely affects the the liberal seasons. Um, and me and Robert both have several friends like yourself that hunt with modern archery equipment, and uh, I understand that, and uh, I don't have anything against that. But it, it's it's just it's not apples to apples; it's apples to oranges, and these seasons were created these liberal seasons in the west anyway were created on these low statistics where we had a low impact on the wildlife and i think that these departments are uh looking at these statistics um and you know we're we're slowly but surely going to see changes in the season and i think that's just um you know that's just a, a fact of life i mean that's 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 what uh technology does it it just changes things Absolutely, yeah, and and I think if we if we want to hang on to these liberal seasons, there we need to we need to look at and we need to be able to make a case for for being able to hang on to them. You know, it's uh, yeah. We need. I to mean, t- we're we're so lu- we're so lucky here in Alberta. We our our hunting season, our bow hunting season, uh, goes from September the first until. I think that the WMU, uh, and I don't know how you guys, our province is, is cut into WMUs. They're wildlife management units. They're smaller parcels of the, of the province. Yeah, we have management units. Where, where the, the area where I'm at is we have a bow season only from... Uh, September the 1st, and I think rifle season opens on the 26th of October. So we have almost two months 
um, where we can hunt with a bow and arrow only. And then, right. I mean, obviously, we can also hunt with a bow if you choose to do that until the end of November. And then there is some special draw seasons right into December and January. And so, Bert, now that the the general mule deer has gone to a draw for the residents, is that for non-residents also? No, I don't think non-residents, non-resident aliens, I don't think can put into the draws. Because they're all going through an outfitter or something. Yeah, non-resident Canadians can can still put in for the draw, I think, but don't quote me on that. I'm, yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. So how right. we have, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so, so how difficult is the draw now that, that it went from general to you having to draw it? Oh, it's amazing. It's, uh, probably at least five or six years. Wow. It, it, it goes, it goes on a preference point system. Mm-hmm. And, and you at least at least have to wait five or six years to get a tag now that where I'm at anyway. Yeah, and see, that's a lot of our hunting in the West has gone to that too. You know, we get the argument, you know, because we, you know, we obviously get hate mail from talking about technology and everything, but but uh, we we get that argument. Well, they're not they're never going to change our seasons, you know, and and obviously they have where you're at and. And it's changed just in the draws for us too, not not just because it went to draw, but because of the amount of people now that apply for an archery tag. Where back in the eighties and nineties, when the when the equipment was different, you wouldn't have have people wasting five or ten years worth of points. So, yeah, I know because... me and me and James are pretty pretty adamant about trying to get some more traditional seasons, you know, throughout the West, just to kind of. You know, I, most of the people I hunt with hunt with a compound too, and and I, you can't blame them. But what I think what they don't understand is that it is it's taking opportunity away. Whether whether you're bow hunting with a compound or a recurve, a, a, well, especially the, I mean, you're a prime example. A season you used to be able to hunt every year, now you get to hunt it once every six years. Well, I mean, you don't have, you know, your prime of your life from from 20 to 60 we'll say you know when you're hunting there, there's only so many six-year chunks you know and it and it's it's kind of sad to go from where where it was and, to and, where it's going so hopefully we can kind of try to make a little bit of a difference there and just because because even even the compound friends of mine when i explain that to them and and would you rather hunt this every year with a, a recurve or a longbow or hunt it once every six years with a compound. Well, even all my buddies that hunt with compounds are all like, well, yeah, I'd go get a recurve. Well, unfortunately that's going to start happening more than we want it to. And we're going to have to make that decision. So if we can cut it off before it's gone. Yeah. Because, well, and that's, that's the thing. You never miss it until it's gone. Right. Exactly. And, and I think if, if these, these guys, you know, these, and I don't want to, I think we need to stick together, kind of. Yeah, for sure. Um, if people think, if archers think we have a season now that they'll never change it, we're, we're, uh, we're kidding ourselves, you know, because they, they will change it. It's going to, it's going to steamroll them. It's going to take them by surprise. And all of a sudden that season's going to be gone and they're going to go, well, what happened? You know, well, 
this is what happened. You, the efficiency of the archery equipment has gotten so much better that your success rate is through the roof. So we just don't have 200-inch mule deer to hunt anymore. So now we're going to cut the season back from two months to three weeks, or we're only going to give, we're going to cut down the permits. We're going to, we're, we're going to give you uh, 500 permits instead of the 1,500 that we're used to, you know? Yeah, and I think that it, it it's not that we're in favor of taking away from any any uh, anyone because the the option is everybody can go out and buy themselves a, a recurve and put the time in and learn how to use it. And if we had a season for primitive traditional archery equipment that that's going to be available for for everyone it, it's it's not like i i want to see some special season uh you know the james or season where only i get a hunt uh <laughs> I, I i i want to see a season that uh we still have a low impact and we can still get a liberal season and still get uh favorable dates being able to hunt them during the rut being able to hunt them when they're in the velvet being able to hunt them in times where it is possible to get inside of that 20 yards. And, and it has other repercussions too, that I, that people don't think about, you know, the, the, at least in the West, those, those group hunts with, with your family and your cousins and all that. Well, when you have to start drawing all these tags, you know, that's how I was raised. I was raised. I mean, I took my first steps in 1980 up in hunting camp with my family. And, and every year since then, we did it every year with our family. Our family stayed tight. You know, I mean, that's why me and my brother are so close. That's what we grew up doing and we keep doing it. Well, now, you know, I got two cousins that'll draw a tag over here and, and I draw a tag here. And my brother draws a tag here. It's like, you're, you're all kind of, it's just a totally different, you know, thing we got now, which is, which is for passing it on to the kids. It makes it a lot tougher also. Hey, Robert, how many, uh, pre- how many preference points for mule deer do you have in the state of Oregon? I think I have 18 now. So you've been waiting, <laughs> eight, you've been waiting 18 years to get the hunt you want. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and I, and it's like that all over, you know, I got, and, and of course, you know, we're able to still have a general season in Oregon. So we're still able to, you know, I apply for the better hunts out of state, but yeah, I mean, I've been applying for 17 years in Nevada for elk and, and, and I've had tags like a Nevada deer tags, another prime example, you know, back in the early, even two thousands, you know, when I was 20, you could draw a tag every, every other year in the areas we hunt. Well, now it's kind of like where Bert's at. You draw it every six years or seven years. Well, man, you know, that's, you only get a few of those now. So anyway, that's how many, that's how many hunters, how many, how many archery hunters are there in, in Oregon? Ooh, I don't know the number. Do you know, James, how many overall archery hunters there are? I, I, I really don't know the number in, in Oregon. You have to, um, you either put in for a rifle tag or an archery tag, but if you don't draw the tag you want, you can go general season rifle or archery. So I know here locally a lot of the guys are actually rifle hunters, and they put in for the rifle tags they want, and if they don't draw them, they hunt archery because the general season is is a lot more liberal and there's more opportunity. So uh, right. so we have we have a lot of guys that aren't even really what you would call archery hunters they're they're more uh, of an opportunist 
which there's nothing wrong with that either. But but their first objective is to get a quality rifle tag, and if uh, that tag doesn't become available, then they take the general season archery tag to to have a tag in their pocket. See, and that's that's kind of the thing I was trying to get to. It's with with my little McDonald. You know, you put your money down. You need a result, right? Right. Um, it's it's. I think we're losing sight of time spent out there. I hunted fifty eight days last year, and I never shot an arrow. Let's let's enjoy the time spent out there. Let's not focus on the end result so much anymore. And I think part of that comes as you get a little older. It's there is always something to see, and there's always something that happens. If you know, I've I've had uh, I've had a grizzly bear walk underneath my tree stand in at two, when there was a foot and a half, two feet of snow on the ground when I didn't have a inkling at all um, to carry my bear spray. I mean, we where I'm at anyway. We you don't go hunting without bear spray on your hip and one in your pack. It's we have one of the densest grizzly bear populations in in North America, right in our southwest little corner of the world here. So it's it's I think we need to and and maybe that's part of part of it is the the, the system too. I think we have uh, the here's the twenty sixteen stats. A total number of hunting licenses sold in Alberta was hundred and twenty seven thousand. About 20% of those are archery hunters. So but, 20, 25,000 or so. Yeah, give or take. Um, but the applications for the hunting draws are pushing half a million. Wow. See, the thing is, everybody, it never used to be like that here either. Everybody nowadays is putting in for every critter that they possibly can. So hunt, hunter opportunity is definitely lost. Absolutely. Through, you know, we always, we, we were able to put in for whitetail, mule deer, and then either or elk and moose. But now you can put, now you can put in for whitetail, mule deer, elk, moose, bison, goat, antelope, you name it. And and that's the thing, A, a family of three or four or five. They, everybody puts in for everything. And sometimes um, I worked with a lady, her family put in for, for the elk licenses in, in our, our WMU, and they got two elk licenses and a moose license, which is great for them, but how in the world can you, with four people, eat two elk and a moose? <laughs> right. Absolutely. So I think uh, to to conclude this discussion, uh, as far as um, you know, talking about the technology and the change of season, is I think it comes down to hunter opportunity, and I think that we could all agree that it, it's not that we, we want to point fingers at rifle hunters or at compound bow users. Um, it, it is more that that the archery seasons were uh, dictated by a low success rate, a low impact on the wildlife, which created a opportunity for a long season. And now that that has changed, 
we're losing these opportunities and I don't wish for uh, anyone that wants to hunt with a muzzleloader or a crossbow or a compound to not have an opportunity. I just don't want to see guys that are hunting with um, traditional archery tackle, which has got a very low success rate to uh, lose the opportunity if we, because it's a, it's a great management tool to give everybody that's listening uh, a chance to have more time in the field and, and to go hunting every year, like Robert said, uh, by using a lesser weapon, a, a weapon that has a low impact on our uh, animal population. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I think that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And, and so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to build walls and I think you're right. We do all need to stick together. And I, 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 I have, uh, you know, my mother's a rifle hunter and I'm getting my daughters into rifle hunting and a lot of my great friends hunt with compounds and I want all those guys to, to, uh, have a chance to uh, go hunting. But if we're going to start shortening seasons, um, let's let's have a, a primitive, a true primitive season, the way we we once uh, set up these archery seasons, and allow anyone that wants to take on the skill set of uh, shooting a bare bow with no technology, just a recurve and a longbow with a an arrow and a sharp broadhead, a chance to get out there. And you know, I know uh, seven days. Uh, is not enough time for me to get an elk. I know 30 days isn't quite enough time, so I can't really afford to lose. Uh, <laughs> I can't really really afford to lose uh, any time in the in my season because uh, with a five percent success rate, it, it boils down to time in the field if you're going to uh, find success. Some sometimes three months isn't enough, James. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I <laughs> Yeah, and and it's a tremendous feeling when you can put it all together. Um, you know, it took me uh, seven years to put a uh, an elk tag on an elk um, it, it, with traditional archery tackle, um, where it, it was uh, I found it quite easy to do with modern archery tackle, and um, that feeling of accomplishment. Um, it's awesome, and it, it it what it did was it caused me to become a better hunter. I had to learn how to get close. I had to learn when to draw the bow, and I mean, I still have a lot to learn. But I've I've really enjoyed this journey of learning to uh, hone in these skill sets, uh, and with that comes tracking and uh, learning to play the woodsmanship in a whole. I feel our skills that are, are lost amongst the younger generation with um, all the modern gadgets that are available. And, I mean, granted, I, I'm guilty. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, that I don't uh, wear a nice set of uh, well-made boots and wear warm clothing and have a nice backpack with a titanium frame and have a GPS in my pocket, because I do. Uh, but uh, at some point, I think we need to get back to our roots and, and, and not lose the skill set of uh, outdoorsmen and having woodsmanship. That's kind of my ploy on the thing. Absolutely, yeah. I, uh, I, I just got back in, in middle of June from a, from a trip to uh, Namibia in Africa. And I tell you what, 
the every every story you hear about uh, trackers and and um, and skinners in in Africa. Some of those those local tribes are um, phenomenal. Uh, it it just uh, I was mesmerized by guys tracking um, my warthog and and so on. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, I've always heard Rains that. Of I've always wanted to go over there just for that because <laughs> I've heard so much about the legendary tracking of those trackers over there in Africa. And it's like, I don't want to go over there just to hunt. I just want to go over there and track some animals with them because you probably so, learn so much. I got a question. Now, are those trackers, are they packing around some of their children? Is this being Is this being passed down? Did you witness any of that? Um, or, you know, because that, that's my fear. I mean, guys, uh, like Dick Robertson, uh, guys, uh, you know, like yourself, your, your Norm Johnson's, you know, these, these guys that are seasoned that have these wisdomship skills, I'm fortunate to get to spend, uh, time with, uh, guys of your statue and, uh, and, you know, even age class, you know, guys that are, have the experience and getting to learn these things. Um, I think is really important, and I hate to see it, it lost. Oh, absolutely! Uh, I didn't see first firsthand that their that their kids were in on this, but I think that's more of a of a, a client tracker thing. But I think in the background, I think those kids are definitely raised. Um, uh, tracking and and uh, I mean you d- they are they are not within driving distance of of a big city or a town you know they they survive by their wits even on the 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 concession I hunted was twenty five thousand acres and it was it it's kind of is considered small for over there. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just goes back. I mean, they eat, they eat what they hunt. It's, it's not, and it, it, the, the meat that the hunters kill goes to, to the smaller villages, but the, the people that actually live on the ranch live by their wits, you know? Yeah. I think it's, uh, just real important that, um, we get out and we try to learn from, uh, if you know guys like yourself, and I, that's what we we try to um, convey in the podcasts, is woodsmanship is is such a huge part. It's the other side of bow hunting, and it, it's definitely uh, uh, it seems to be a lost skill set amongst uh, our younger generation in this fast paced, instant gratification lifestyle that we have here in the in the lower forty eight. Yeah, that, and that's that's why I I when we mentioned before in the, in the pre-interview there about bow hunters being able to make or or traditional bow hunters being able to make their own string or or being to being able to make their own bow is is I am so lucky and so thankful for for meeting some of these names and and these names are are more than willing to pass on um, what they know and 
and can do and I would be I would be thrilled to make you know to help somebody make a string or or to help somebody make a bow or it'd be it's it you feel kind of like passing on the torch you know yeah absolutely because uh if we don't we're going to just be killing all our animals uh on the PlayStation on the big screen TV and uh eating this uh soy burgers <laughs> well, well and i mean there is people there is people you know in the big cities that honestly think that their their meat comes on a little styrofoam tray you know yeah absolutely yeah, for sure yeah for sure well that's and awesome uh, and, and and i have no idea where i got the 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 where for all to to not have that you know, being born and raised in Amsterdam, I was 20 when I left. So, um, I, I don't know where that came from, but it's, it's certainly, uh, well, like you said, well, I, I, I think it's, it came, I think it's deep inside all of us. You know, I mean, if you look back at the time, thousands and thousands of years, we just changed that the last couple hundred, you know, so uh, yeah, uh, I think it is deep inside all of us. I think all it takes is a trip out to wild places and seeing wild things. I uh, I've got a quick story I'd like to share that just kind of came to head. I I took uh, uh, my wife's uh, little brother. Uh, he's actually a stepbrother, Ben, out into the woods. And Ben is uh, had grown up around the woods, but he'd never been in the woods. And I uh, I took him with me down into the woods to we were doing some scouting all it was before elk season and on, on our trip down to uh look around and check the elk sign out we ran into a herd of elk and i i got them off the side of the trail and we had these elk pass by us at uh spitting distance and he was putting up uh, a, 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 a a pretend rifle and he was winking one eye and pretending to shoot at these elk and he he was he, he he was so excited. His eyes were like saucers, and he said he felt so alive, and he couldn't believe he'd never been close to animals like this. And he wanted to hunt, and he he felt like he he was a hunter. And uh, then we went on to see a bear, and then we seen some deer. And every time he'd pull up his pretend air gun, and he would wink an eye and and he he would mock you know pretend like he was hunting and he went on to uh buying a rifle and shooting his first deer and i, I think it is i think it's deep inside all of us it's just uh getting uh taking guys out i think everybody should try to expose people to to to, to wild places and wild things because i think it's deep inside of all of us absolutely yeah uh, i agree 110 percent uh, it was neat to see this guy that never spent much time out of his house to be so excited about being uh, in the woods. Um, and so it, yeah, it, it, it's it's that's really great. rewarding. Good for you for doing that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I need to do it more often. Yeah. So, yeah, it wouldn't so, hurt. Yeah, so transitioning, I, I, I hope uh, our uh, listeners, you know, got a feel for, uh, you know, that, that, topic is just being a, a way to translate our uh, passion for the outdoors and our uh, our want for long liberal seasons 
And uh, with that, um, you'd brought up the big grizzly bear uh, population you have. Um, have you uh, done any grizzly bear hunting? I uh, yes, I went. Uh, I I treated myself for my fiftieth birthday. I treated myself to uh, uh, Alaskan brown bear hunt. Very cool. Uh, can you give us a, a breakdown on how that uh, hunt was for you? It was, uh, yeah, it was a, a, a memory that's just, uh, you know, you sit back in the wintertime and, and you, it was just absolutely fabulous. I was up uh, on the Alaska Peninsula, kind of kitty corner from, from Kodiak Island. Okay. It was, uh, well, it was 15 years ago now, I guess, 2002. Spring Springtime, spring bear? Uh, no, it was fall actually, and we talked uh, we talked about that. And and uh, spring, like for for bow hunting, it took me a couple of years to to put that hunt together actually. And there was lots of back and forth with the with the outfitter. Um, spring bear, they come out, they're hungry and they're ornery, and if they if they they're they're pretty protective of their food source in the spring. And, and also in the fall, in September, he says what they sometimes do is follow the moose hunters. And then if there is a successful moose hunt, um, they, they hunt the gut piles and, and, you know, try, he says, but nine times out of 10, that bear is so protective of the food source that they, they, you get within a hundred yards and they'll charge. So I went a little later on in, uh, in October when they're, when the salmon are running and, and the, they're, they're not as, uh, they're just before they go into hibernation where they, they just fill up on salmon. There is, it, it's so neat to see. Um, I was up there 18 days and I was absolutely amazed that these, all these little streams had trails beside them. And I'm thinking, well, what, what's the deal with that? You know, like there, there is stuff walking up and down these streams all the time. Like, are they caribou trails? Anyway, I got to talking to the guide and he's they're, they're, they're bear trails. They're actual bear trails that are, that are just look like a, like a cow trail beside it, beside a creek that, and that's what they do. They walk up and down those creeks and just fill up on salmon. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely mesmerizing. Anyway, I was I was up, uh, like I say, I was up there eighteen days. It rained sixteen out of the eighteen days. Wow. Um, <laughs> not not all day, not you know, not all day, all all day long kind of thing. But um, we we did get rain uh, rain showers every day. So anyway, uh, I got my bear on the last day. Um, got close to a few of them, um, uh, spot and stock. Uh, um, I'll, I'll spare you the, the, the 15 day prelude, but, uh, <laughs> spotted, spotted this bear. He was fishing in a, in a little corner of a, of a deep spot in a Creek. And it probably took us a couple of hours to make our way over there. And of course, by the time we got there, he was no longer there, but we, we did find him again in the willows and tried to get close to him in the willows. Well, if you've ever been to Alaska, 
in the willows. The willows are, you know, what looks like pretty flat, clean stuff you could walk through is pretty much impossible to get through without making a bunch of noise. Anyway, I got within about probably 40 yards or so, and this bear realized something was up. He could hear the odd little twig breaking or the grass brushing up against my clothes or whatever. Anyway, he he took off and he laid on a wide open hillside um, watching his back trail. Uh, he, he wasn't a huge bear, but I mean, I wasn't, I'm not into the new world record, you know, I just wanted a, um, a decent representation of the, the species, so to speak. And, but he kept looking back when he was laying there, he kept looking back at that fishing hole he was at earlier in the, and the guide said to me, he says, you know, what's going to happen? He says, that bear is going to get up here in a while. And he's going to go right back to that fishing hole. And he says, when he does, we're going to just leave all our stuff here and we're going to beat him down there. We're going to, we're going to just motor on back down there. And sure as heck, I mean, that's, that's exactly what happened. He, he laid there probably for two, two and a half hours. And he got up and took a few mouthfuls of berries that were kind of, I, I assume they were cranberries, low bush cranberries that, that were around him and he started slowly making his way back down to that fishing hole and so we motored on down there and got right in the creek actually, right in the in the water and and uh, waited waited for him to show up and pretty soon we could see him about three hundred yards out and he it's kind of kind of rolling little hummocky kind of terrain and He'd disappear and he'd get a couple of hundred yards, hundred yards, fifty yards, and here he comes. And I'm the guides behind me filming, and and uh, I'm just standing in the creek waiting for this bear to show up. And the the last time I saw him was about twenty yards, and then he disappeared. And when he popped back up, he was probably about oh I don't know seven or eight steps from where I was standing, and uh, he, he gave me a, a, a shot opportunity, which, uh, which I took, uh, and kind of in between, right kind of underneath his chin, and the guide and I talked about, because uh, he was carrying his three seventy five for for a backup gun, if he felt like it wasn't a, a good shot, he would, he would shoot it, but not until I kind of gave him the green light, you know? So anyway, uh, I, I buried the arrow right underneath his chin between his front legs and, and killed that bear. But the guide felt like it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a killing shot with a bow. So at about 60 or 70 yards, he, he shot on, I wasn't going to say anything, and he says, oh, it's not a good shot, it's not a good shot, and I says, he's dead, he's dead, uh. and anyway, he ended up putting a, putting a, a, a round in him, and, uh, but by the amount of blood that I killed that bear, there's no doubt in my mind, but it's unfortunate, but... Yeah, it's too bad. Um, not, not, you know, not, it didn't take anything... I, I was disappointed right at the moment, but it's 
now when I look at the mountain and uh, I know in in my heart of hearts that I that I killed that bear, you know, so it really it really doesn't take anything away from it for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like to be pretty common practice up there from the stories I've heard. Yeah. It you really have to know your guide and and uh, even at that, you know, we we spent 18 days together up there and and they I mean they they have your best interest at heart as well, right? So they they want you to go home with the bear, but it's yeah, it's it is what it is and no sounds, uh sounds like a pretty epic hunt. You're talking earlier about the cat quiver. Do you still use that? Is that what you used up there in the rain and Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm a, it takes a bit of getting used to, but I, I'm, th- I think I'm on my third one now. So I've, I've wore two out. So, <laughs> yeah, I've tried them over the years, but like you said, it takes some getting used to, and I never, I'd try it for a few days and then go back to my bow quiver. So, I mean, I could see where it'd be super <laughs> handy, especially, you know, we hunt blacktails a lot and it's always raining and they're just in there all nice right. and cozy and it's pretty slick how you pull them out, but you just, like you said, take some getting used to of when, when that bottom part bumps stuff and just, I never got used to it, but I'm always tempted to give it a shot again. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't hunt without one. I, I can't stand shooting with a, with a quiver on my bow. So I, and, and, a, and a back quiver is always seems to fill up with pine needles and, and stuff. And it, it's hard to keep your, your broadheads sharp and yeah um john strunk have you seen what he shoots he has a little side quiver that he kind of makes yeah he, he made, those, yeah he made me one of those, those a few those years ago yeah 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 and those are pretty slick i actually used that one year and i i really didn't have any complaints so so do you do you do any um ambush tree stand uh hunting for uh whitetails up there in alberta yeah, I'm, I'm just. I just moved my elk stand over, oh, probably half a mile into the into the poplar kind of the poplar flats where there is some whitetail traveling through. Um, not saying that an elk isn't going to walk through there either, but um, yeah, it, it'd be pretty much be whitetails from now until the end of November. So unless uh, unless a black bear happens to walk by, <laughs> right? So so you've got an elk elk tag a black bear and a and a uh, white tail tag in your pocket and you're hunting them via tree stand yes um what's your what's your favorite species to hunt oh you know that's that's a that's kind of a dirty question i like <laughs> i like to hunt <laughs> it's um i think meal there i think if i had to put my money on something i'd be a big meal there bucks and I think li- would be my would be my favorite. I mean, I've pretty hunted pretty much hunted all of it. You know, I uh, maybe we can leave that for a later date sometime. But I I managed to kill a, a mountain goat, which was a pretty epic hunt um, back in '89. Uh, oh, we we've um, got we've got time for one more story. I'd love to hear the mountain goat story. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a story. Um, I got a call. Um, in in '89, from um, Dave Richardson, the the fellow that kind of was the, the force behind the North American Longbow Safari, um, that Mr. James had, uh, 
who was the editor for for uh, I think Bow Hunter magazine in those days. Yep. He had a mountain goat hunt booked with uh, uh, an outfit out of uh, Golden, BC, um, province right next to us, um, Beaverfoot Lodge, and which actually hosted the North American Longbow Safari a couple of times, I think. Anyway, uh, Mr. James had this hunt booked, and he got he twisted an ankle or or got hurt somehow on this hunt. And if I was interested in, in taking over this hunt and, and hunting the rest of the time that, that MR James had booked. So I, uh, I had more than one job in those days and, and I could only get away on the weekend. So I actually phoned this outfit and said, you know, I'd love to do this, but, I can only hunt Saturdays and Sundays. And they said, well, that's no big deal. He says, you can, you can drive out here, which from Calgary was, uh, it's about a two hour, two and a half hour drive. He says, you can drive out Friday night and we'll hunt Saturday and Sunday. You can drive home again on, on, uh, on Sunday night. And I said, well, yeah, I jumped at that chance. And the, I only had to pay the remainder of the days that, that, Mr. James had going to see the way it, it works in British Columbia is this outfitter at the time, I think he had seven per seven mountain goat permits. And if he didn't sell all those permits, then he would only get, so he say if he only sold four permits, then he could only get four permits the following year. So they're pretty keen on hanging on to their permits. So, Anyway, I, that's what I did. I, I hunted the weekends, and, and he says, we can just keep doing that until the end of the season, which, which is into, right into November, too, I think. So um, we kind of the way we hunted was we would drive around and then spot with a, with a spotting scope or glass and these, these mountainsides. And, I mean, the place is covered with goats. It's just unbelievable the amount of goats there are. Anyway, that that's kind of how things happened. We we uh, actually horsebacked because they they closed some of these these uh, logging roads off to to vehicle traffic in the fall. So we horsebacked to the the bottom of this mountain and spotted two billies bedded way the heck and gone up in the in the shale. And so we were gonna make a play for it and and uh, you only do one climb a, a day kind of thing which which kind of saved my butt too because if if a guy had to do a climb like that 10 days in a row you'd never make it you know <laughs> so, <laughs> so so anyway on our way up to these billies we we were just breaking out of the timber and here was a goat a, a really good goat by itself, um, way down lower below these billies, and and he says, "Well, it's a it's a nanny, but he says it's it's a good nanny, well over nine inches." So I said, "Well, I'm I don't I don't care. I'm back to my, you know, I just want a decent a decent goat." And he says, "Well, that's more than a decent one." So. So anyway, make a long story short, it it uh, we, we kind of got some terrain between between us, 
and uh, got within within shooting distance in this this goat kind of was feeding up this gully and had a bit of a hump in between us and it it looked like she was going to come through an opening in there was some uh, an opening between some of the spruce trees that she was going to come through so i i kind of stopped and kind of focused on that space between the spruce trees and the minute she hit that opening in the spruce trees i came back full draw and 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 shot her and, and killed her and it was i think it one horn is nine and a quarter and the other one's just a shade maybe longer than that and and, wow. and um, yeah, you have to take them in and, and register them with, with the Fish and Wildlife, and they, they age them. And she was um, over 18 years old. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, no teeth left in her. See, I probably did her a favor by taking her out of the gene pool. Yeah, for did, sure. At that age, did she, was, did she still make good table fare? It was the most awful eating you've ever <laughs> experience in your life <laughs> Happy. Uh, make jerky out of that yeah, one, it, huh? it was pretty brutal yeah uh, but sounds like a sounds like a really awesome adventure uh in some wild places yeah it was great and actually we climbed we we uh gutted her and, and did the the initial cuts i've got her full mounted actually did the initial cuts for skinning her out for, for a full mount and then we went back up the next day to get the meat in the, off the mountain you know so yeah it was yeah it was pretty pretty uh stands out well in my in my memory of things you know yeah that's that sounds like a, a an amazing adventure so we really appreciate you taking the time is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with uh you maybe some some of uh, our younger generation that is up and coming, uh, any advice that you, you may have? It, the only advice I, I've got to the younger guys like, like yourselves and, and uh, uh, Adam, you know, that, that mid-20s, 30-year-old, don't be afraid to ask for help or don't be afraid to ask one of us to if you want to learn to make your own string or if you want to learn to make your own bow, because the, I'm sure there is, I speak for, for the majority of, of boyers and, uh, I, I really don't consider myself an old time bow hunter, but I guess I'm, I'm sort of getting there. I'd be, uh, I'd be happy to help you and, and, uh, teach you what I know and, and, um, Whatever I can help you with, I'd be I'd be happy to do it. Well, uh, you hear that, Adam? A- Adam's uh, a guy I follow on Instagram, and he's who recommended Bert to me. So, uh, big thank you to you, Adam. Uh, you know who you are, and it sounds like you got an open invitation with a uh, well, a living legend here, uh, Bert Freelink. So you <laughs> might want to you might want to take him up on that. <laughs> Easy now. <laughs> Actually, Adam. Adam expressed an interest in building a, a, a laminated uh, a bamboo back bow. Actually, and we we worked on that for a, for a weekend, and and uh, he went home with a with a shootable bow. and And his his parting words to me were, um, "Bert, I, I really I really enjoyed this, but but I think I like shooting them better than I like making them." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
that's uh, awesome. Fair, fair, I guess. That's awesome. It was well, too, much, too much standing for him, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Copy that. All righty. Well, uh, once again, yeah, we, we appreciate having you on. And, um, yeah, th- uh, we wish you the best of luck uh, filling some of those uh, tags you still got left in your pocket this fall. Well, I appreciate that, and, and thanks for you, to you guys for, for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. We want to thank our listeners. The podcast has been growing awesome. We wouldn't uh, be doing this if it weren't for you guys. We're Me and Bob are just two blue-collared guys just trying to shed a bright light on traditional archery. Um, so we just want to thank you. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Check us out on our social media, Facebook, Instagram. Keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Beautiful.